I'm just going to start off by letting you know, and I, I believe that Satan never wants you here, but if you knew the stuff that's happened in just the last four or five weeks as a church body, and if you knew what's just happened in the last two days, last week, uh, including the amount of people not here tonight for funerals and births, but then just literally this afternoon, people on the worship team uh, couldn't make it uh, because of sickness. So Liz at the last minute had to change around the entire set list and then reprint everything off, all of your handouts. Uh, I got a phone call, uh, text message just before I walked up. Another guy's car broke down. Uh, people had to work the Flower Town Festival. Yesterday morning, uh, Hope Kids was only uh, half staffed. And we were wondering if we just had to shut down Hope Kids because the amount of people who've had something come up this week. So uh, fortunately, even one of the people that said, yeah, I can do that, their child also got sick and they had to cancel. Thus, why Will is in Hope Kids tonight. Um, it has been crazy. And I was thinking of it as I was going through my message. Sorry for being out of breath. This is what I'm explaining. I'm going through my notes, as I always do before coming up here, uh, before we start singing. And then I close out my iPad until I come up here. And just now, I opened it up, and it was gone. All my notes were gone. And so I had to run over to Hope Kids, <laughs> get it to download again. This has never happened in the two years we've been outside. And then come running back. Thankfully, Liz prayed for a long time. I told uh, Cam and I were talking this afternoon, and I was like, going through this finance and anxiety series here at the end of Matthew 6, uh, we could have never anticipated everything that we've gone through just in the last four weeks since the series started, personally, as a church. Um, it's been crazy. And I said, let's do a series... <laughs> Before we get into Matthew 7, I'm like, blessings falling from heaven, or something like that. But in all honesty, we've seen that happen as well. Uh, through all the trials and through all this stuff, and again, we've all experienced it. We've also seen God's incredible sovereign hand in every aspect of it. And this message tonight, as we finish up uh, Matthew chapter 6... came to me, and I don't know if it was originally supposed to be a message or God just telling me. I make the mistake sometimes of saying, I have got to find more time to pray. And what God does in response is finds that time for me. And it's usually, and I kid you not, between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. And I wake up not because one of my children has woke me up, but I wake up and cannot fall asleep, and I can hear God saying, hey, here's your time to pray. And I cannot fall asleep until I start praying. And we are talking about prayer and how the importance of prayer and the importance of spending time with God as we, as we take this, uh, these, ask, these different spiritual disciplines that Jesus is teaching on here in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount and yet, even in that time, we've already talked, like, finding time to pray is difficult. So God said, okay, Rob, here you go. I found you time. And maybe when you spend all day tired, you realize you need to make it 
happen a little faster. So right after Will preached two weeks ago, on a Monday night, I woke up and just felt God wanted to share this. And maybe it was just to me, but I invite you to listen in. Now, we've talked about four weeks ago, and as Will's gone through, we've talked about why um, Jesus seems to have this talking about, hey, here's what you should be investing your money in. Invest your money in eternity. Invest your money in what will last forever. And then he immediately, that word, therefore, and switches to anxiety. Why? Talking about finances induces anxiety. But I want to share, before we jump into the passage, before we jump into the message, and I forgot to start my timer originally, so actually I'm just at 29 seconds so far. I wanted to share two thoughts that I hope you find encouraging before we get into the passage, and then we'll also close with some encouraging thoughts. But what I want you to know first is that Jesus knows your emotions. Jesus knows your emotions. I find that so comforting. Uh, growing up in a culture where if you demonstrated any form of emotion, you were letting your emotions get the best of you. Uh, that you weren't, you weren't practicing self-control. Uh, that when you cry in front of somebody, you have to keep apologizing for it. If you've ever cried in front of me, hopefully you've heard me say, don't apologize for crying. It's fine. Do it. Go into that emotion unless it's related to sports. But Jesus knows your emotions. He had them. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. Remember Matthew 4, Jesus was tempted. So number one, Jesus knows your emotions. Uh, Encouraging thought number two, emotions are God-given. They're given to you for a reason. The reason that you are uh, uh, think to look both ways before crossing the street is because of this emotion of fear, and that's good. It keeps you alive a lot of times. But because we have a sin nature that stains a lot of these God-given emotions, or we misuse them, or we pervert them in some ways, but again, just know, Jesus knows your emotions, and emotions are God-given. So with that being said, jump into Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Everybody there? Everybody there? All right. Thank you, Courtney. 19. I hope you're kidding. We've been here for four weeks, Michael. (laughs) Starting in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, if you haven't yet, circle that, underline it, 
whatever you need to do. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, circled again, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I want you to notice that you see the part where Jesus gets done talking about finances, and then he says, now anybody who struggles with anxiety or worry, just raise your hand, because I want to talk to you people for a moment. He doesn't do that. Why? Because every human being struggles with anxiety and worry. Everyone. So what I want you to do is please write down these notes, if you would, this evening. I want to walk through seven lies Satan wants you to believe. I'll write these down because these are going to be your discussion questions in community group. These are conversation starters. I am not saying this is an exhaustive list. This is just what I woke up in the middle of the night and God wanted to remind me of. I may have read them in a book years ago and they are totally stolen. I don't know. But this is what God specifically put in my brain that Monday night after the first night Will spoke. Seven lies Satan wants you to believe. By the way, I will tell you right now, one of the best books you can read, besides the Bible, obviously, um, there's a book by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. It was a life-changing book for me. I've read it about three times, and I would highly encourage you, and I can text that to you if you'd like it. That's right. <laughs> Lies Satan wants you to believe. Lie number one. Satan wants you to believe you just need a little bit more blank before God has your full devotion. You just need a little bit more blank before God has your full devotion. That's up to you to fill in the blank, and it's usually multiple choice, and it's D, all of the above. You just need a little bit more money before God has your full devotion. You just need a little bit more in your savings account. You just need a little bit more invested. You just need a little bit more time. I remember when I was uh, in college, I had a professor and said, um, hey, if you can't find the time now, and I was about 23, 24 years old at the time, and yes, I started college late. 
He said, if you can't find time now to study, you will never have time in your life because you will never have as much time as you do right now. And I was like, this guy doesn't know my life. And then as I've gotten older, and now at 26 years old, I think, oh, he was exactly right. So you just need a little bit more time, and then God has your full devotions. I just need a little bit of a change to my relationship status, and then God has my full devotion. I just need a little more age. I need a little more maturity. I just need a little bit more blank, and then God will have my full devotion. This is a lie we constantly tell ourselves. It is a lie Satan wants you to believe. You just need a little bit more blank before God has your full devotion. Lie number two. You are alone in your anxiety. Lie number two, you are alone in your anxiety. This goes back to what we started about at the beginning. Jesus knows your emotions. He knows what you're going through. You are never alone. And we'll talk a little bit more about this at the end, but you are never alone. If Jesus is the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, you are never alone. And I'm going to use Jesus as an example of this. Here we have Jesus, and he's speaking on this mountainside in Galilee. And we have this Sermon on the Mountain. We see throughout the Gospels, these crowds are following him. He feeds the 5,000. He feeds the 4,000. I mean, he's got megachurch. People are flocking to him. The Romans are nervous because of just the men that are following him. He can amass an army, and they're wondering, what is he going to do? And just when it seems like he's got everyone, he jumps into a boat and jumps the other side of the lake. He has all these people following him. And then the story in John 6, I find it so comforting. Jesus preaches this message, and then in verse 60 of chapter 6, he says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Jesus has these followings of thousands of people, and when he starts to preach messages, they start to turn and run. And you read this story, and you're like, well, at least he had Simon Peter. Now, that's a friend who always has your back. And he says, I have chosen you twelve. They're like, wow, twelve great friends. He's like, and one of you is going to betray me. They're like, okay, that's weird. All of them would run when Jesus needed them most. When he asked them to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, they fell asleep. When Jesus was crucified, for the most part, everyone had abandoned him. You are not alone in your anxiety. 
Jesus would see in his closest disciples, besides John who was there, and we don't know who else was possibly there, they all abandoned him. Like I said earlier, everyone battles fear and anxiety. It is Satan's favorite tool. He manipulates you. He gets you to do what he wants. He gets you to believe lies constantly because of fear, what I call the fear of man. What will other people think? Here's an example of how I know everyone here struggles with anxiety. And correct me if I'm wrong. When was the last time that you talked to someone who did not know Jesus and talked them through the gospel, what it is to know Jesus? When was the last time you invited somebody over to your house to discuss with them eternal things and why you love Jesus and want to follow him? When was the last time you invited someone personally to come to church who did not know the Lord, invited them to community group, uh, uh, went through these because you were so burdened for your neighbors you couldn't imagine living another day without sharing with them what it means to know Christ? The main reason we don't do that on a regular basis is because we're scared of what they'll think of us. Everyone battles anxiety. Satan wants you to believe you are alone. Jesus wants you to know he's always there for you. He's provided you a church. He's provided you a family to walk arm in arm, to talk through and walk through these things so that we encourage each other. I'm getting ahead of myself. Lie number three. Ties in with number two. Lie number three, that Satan wants you to believe, the world is out to get you, and you alone. Lie number three, the world is out to get you, and you alone. I didn't realize how much that I thought I was fine. I would have said, no, I don't battle anxiety. But then you would ride to me on the way to work. And I actually had a friend who, uh, we would ride together. We had a car accident. So we were down to one car, and a friend lived near me. We were riding to work all the time, and I thought we were having a blast. Uh, then we had another car given to us. Then I went through this life-changing thing a couple years into our marriage where I was extremely humbled, and I was extremely uh, aware of how sinful I really was. And I started to realize I am a massive complainer. I am bitter. I do not forgive people. I keep a long list of record of wrongs. And I went through and through, and it was this break, this entire year of just being broken, And then we had a transmission blow out on another car. (laughs) You've seen the cars I drive. And I called that same friend and I said, hey, can I get a ride to work? I blew the transmission. He said, yeah, absolutely. So we rode together for a week. And the second week we get in the car and he says, Rob, when you asked me to give you a ride, I was actually concerned because I hate riding to work and listening to you complain the whole time. He goes, but this last week you haven't complained one time and I've really enjoyed it and chatting with you. And I started to realize I had taken on this victim persona where I really thought that the vice president, now, I was working maintenance with about 3,000 other people in my department. And I really thought the vice president had it out for me and me alone. He barely knew my name. In my mind, and it was just this incredibly prideful view of self, he woke up every day going, I've got to make Rob's life miserable today. Turns out all 3,000 of us were miserable He wasn't singling me out. I had a very selfish, narrow view of my life. I thought everybody was out to get me, and here I am, just fighting by myself strong, the valiant warrior. I couldn't have been more 
wrong. We do not see as we are told to see how powerful God is. We think we have to take matters into our own hand. I love the stories of Elijah and Elisha. If you've never read through First and Second Kings, First uh, Kings 19, one of my favorite passages of encouragement when I need it. But we're not there. We're going to be in Second Kings chapter 6. Elisha comes on the scene after Elijah. And if you've never studied Elisha, I cannot encourage you to do so enough. A man who was just used by God in such a mighty way that even when he was dead and they threw him in the grave, his body touched the dead body and that dead body came back to life. Read it. It's amazing. But in 2 Kings 6, um, Elisha's servant who worked with him comes running up and starting in verse 15, it says, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That is how God protects his children. We have such a narrow view when God says he is all-powerful. It takes a lifetime of hoping you are learning just how powerful God is. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, and I imagine that this is how Paul also could see like Elisha. I can't prove that. But 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul writes, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. When we start to view ourselves in this way, when we start to think that everyone is out to get us, we limit our perspective. We do not see it with eternity in mind. We see it with a very earthly, temporal view. But Satan wants you to believe that the world is out to get you and you alone. Lie number four. Satan wants you to believe that the truths of the Bible are for that other person, not you. Line number four, the truths of the Bible are for that other person, not you. We keep asking the question through, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, what has changed this past week? If you just can't seem to find time to pray, what did you change this past week so that you could? Uh, we've said, uh, if you're in the downtown Somerville area on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, Will and I and a couple others, we try to be in Hutchinson Square 11 to 1 Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you can just stop by for like 10 minutes or five minutes or maybe all two hours, maybe you fast during lunch that day and come and pray with uh, other people or just finding out who are people near you or how do you get together at a park, maybe with your kids or in your driveway and other people in your neighborhood, but how are you changing something this week so you can spend more time praying, more time studying God's word, more time fasting, more time, we keep asking, what changed this past week? How are we adding these spiritual disciplines to your life? But we believe the truths of the Bible are for that other person, not me. In the recording of a message of the Sermon on the Mount or a similar message, like I said from the beginning, this is probably a message that Jesus was continually teaching. But in Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus looks and says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
You understand when we continue to tell our boss, hey, boss, you're the best boss I've ever had. He goes, don't call me your boss. You never listen to me. I have to fire you. You're a terrible worker. Here Jesus is saying, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, and you never obey me? I've given you very clear commands. I've given you very clear things I want you to carry out. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Lie number five. Satan wants you to believe your excuses are legitimate reasons to disobey God's commands. Satan wants you to believe that your excuses are legitimate reasons to disobey God's commands. Uh, Two weeks ago, Will talked about Solomon. And Solomon starts off great. Solomon comes in and God says, you know, what would you like? And Solomon says, I just want wisdom. And he gets wisdom. The smartest man who may have ever lived. And then he started to learn to rely on himself. And as we walked through Ecclesiastes a couple weeks ago, and we started to look at here, Solomon starts doing just a little this, just a little this. And before you know it, his life has spun out of control. He chased everything that we chase, and he got more than we could even in our wildest dreams imagine having. And in the process, he learned to rely on himself. And I'm sure he kept thinking, well, next week, things will be different. Tomorrow, things will be different. You know what? Next month is probably a good month to really start following after God again. Because that was great when I was young, and I really missed that. We do the same thing. We learn how to use excuses with biblical band-aids attached to them. We learn how to, and I keep, you've heard me say probably a million times, it's like the longer that you are a believer and involved in a church, the more excuses you accumulate and you learn how to spiritualize them at the same time. Well, I just, I discerned that I should do this. No, that's actually sin. Like, that's clear-cut sin. You do not have the gift of discernment. Well, I prayed about it and I really felt good. No, that is sin. Like, that's direct disobedience of a command of God. And I know it well because I am also guilty of this. I mean, God knows how much I serve him, right? So surely I could take a day off. You've seen my attendance record at church. It's fantastic. So surely I can get away with that. We just build these excuses and we legitimize them. And we don't rely on God like we should, which is part of the problem. Why? Well, we have credit cards. We have this. We have, we have so much stuff that we learn to rely on. And then we tell other people, like, I'm just learning to rely on God. No, you're not. Lie number five, your excuses are legitimate reasons to disobey God's commands. Lie number six, that Satan wants you to believe. Distancing yourself helps you. Satan wants you to believe that distancing yourself from other believers actually is helping you. We stop and we look at the amount of one another's in the Bible or just in the New Testament. You start to understand that we were, the entire Bible is showing that we were created for relationships. I believe there's like a little over 60 one another's, but there's like five or six, you know how good I am with numbers. There's some of those are like greet one another with a holy kiss. And so they're like, well, there's like 63, but really it's 57. Um, 
So that's why I say there's over 50 of them. We are created for relationships. We are created to help each other. There is an entire focus on relationships, both humans' relationships with God and how we can have that relationship with an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God, but also how do we, from as we just look across this parking lot, how do we, with such various backgrounds, with such various different belief patterns, with such, you name it, how do we come together as a family and how do we help each other out? It's only done because of God. We need each other. The saddest thing is when I hear of churches and uh, there was a city I lived in and we had people that were coming uh, to our church for counseling, and, but I was friends with the pastor at the church they came from. And finally I had lunch with one of them and I said, hey, well, yeah, I, just wanted, I thought you should know this couple that's in your church is coming to our church for, uh, for marriage counseling. They were really going through a rough time and I didn't know why they came to our church. And he goes, what? He goes, I actually was going to come to lunch because we have two of your couples coming to our church for counseling. They're going through a really bad time, and I didn't know why they weren't going to you. And what we realized is in this, in this church culture, um, they didn't want to look bad in front of their church community, so they would take their problems to another church to save face at their church. And it was going on all over the place the more I started talking to other pastors. And I said, how sad is that? This is supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ coming together to help disciple each other, to help build each other up, to encourage each other, to take on each other's burdens, to be there for each other, to count on someone. So in some ways, I get it when I see people pulling themselves back and saying things like, I just need to take a break from church for a while. No, you didn't. That's usually when you needed the church to surround you in prayer and love and take care of you. But that's something that Satan loves to tell us is, hey, you're going through a rough time. You know the last thing you need? to tell anybody, hey, you really got messed up in this sin situation. You know what you should do? Tell no one and don't go to church anymore. You know the thing Satan loves to tell us? The thing Satan loves to get us to believe? We need each other. And lie number seven, and then we'll be almost halfway done with the message. <laughs> they laughed. Lie number seven, Satan wants you to believe that you are in control of anything. Satan wants you to believe that you are in control of anything. That there is anything in your life that you really think that you're in control of, that you have the final say of, just know you're wrong. That is a lie Satan wants you to believe. Ed Welch says, anxious and fearful people can easily slip into taking scripture as a pill. Take one passage twice a day for two weeks and your symptoms will be gone. When the pill doesn't work, we have two choices. We search for another treatment or we confess that we are using scripture as a self-help book for symptom relief, in which case it is time to get back to basics. If you choose to get back to biblical basics, Peter's exhortation to humble ourselves is a great place to start. He's talking about 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'll start in verse 6. Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert. 
Be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. There is so much to focus on in this passage. We could spend another month and barely scratch the surface of just these few short verses. But two things that I want to really focus on, where he starts off and where he finishes. Number one, humble yourself. Look at your humility. What are your views of yourself? We tend to have a very high view of ourselves. If you don't believe me, jump on social media. I haven't been on in five years, but I imagine it hasn't changed much. We have a very high view of ourselves, and we are very willing to let other people know just how much we know. The second part to really focus on in this passage is God's power. Because our humility level changes the more we meditate, the more we study, the more we focus on just how powerful of a God we serve. That should change how we view ourselves. Satan wants you to believe that you are in control of many things. God wants you to understand that only he is in control of everything. So we need to focus on how do we, and going back to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, how do we come before God? When we went through the Lord's Prayer, we come before God recognizing just how powerful a God he is. We say, hallowed be your name. We stop, we recognize his authority. We stop and recognize just that he is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We should be incredibly humbled, and it gives us freedom at the same time to understand that he is in control of everything. And it's not that we need to learn to rely on more things, but that we need to learn to rely less on ourselves and more on God. When we talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it was this ability to to continue to cast off the things that we have taught ourselves to rely on here on earth so that we can rely more on God and his power and his power alone. So now how do we apply these things to our life? There's another thing we say all the time. I heard a pastor tell me one time, keep repeating it. If you want your church to know something, keep repeating it until they start repeating it back to you. Then you'll know they get it and you're just starting. Application number one, Preach yourself the gospel every day. Preach yourself the gospel every day. What is the gospel? That Jesus defeated sin and death. He is all-powerful. 
Jesus took our place. He defeated sin and death so that we no longer have to be enslaved to sin, that we no longer have to fear death because he is in control. He is all powerful. And when he rose from the grave, which we will be celebrating the next few weeks, he demonstrated just how powerful he is. And so when we tell ourselves who we are, that we are nothing but sinful human beings who have been saved by grace through faith in what Jesus did and accomplished on the cross and the empty grave, that helps us start to put everything else that day into perspective. The gospel isn't just this one thing that you accept and you did it, and now you can go on with your life. We must preach ourselves the gospel every day. This helps us in our humility, and it helps us to understand God's power. It sets us off in the right course. We must preach ourselves the gospel every day. What must you do every day? All right. And also, I want you to remember, going back to Satan wants you to believe that you are alone in your anxiety. What was the last thing that Jesus said in the end of Matthew as he is ascending back into heaven? The end of Matthew 28, the second part of verse 20, he says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That Jesus didn't leave us alone. He didn't leave us to try to figure things out for himself. He kept telling his disciples over and over again, and I am sending you a helper. Pray, I am sending you a helper. What we see in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down, and this Holy Spirit becomes a guide. And we call the book of Acts the Acts of the Disciples. We said, really, it's the act of the Holy Spirit who is guiding people to follow after God and to do the things that only God can do. And that same Holy Spirit that we read about throughout the Bible is the same Holy Spirit that is guiding you to accomplish what God has for you. We are not alone because of the gospel, because when we make Jesus the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, we are not alone. He is with us always, even to the very end of the age. The second part of our application. Live out these spiritual disciplines. We keep talking about what it is to live these out, to implement them into our life. What has changed this past week? If it hasn't, what is going to change this coming week? We should never, ever, ever be satisfied at where we are in our spiritual disciplines. We need to continue to dedicate more time, more resources, more of our life into them. So how do we live out our prayer life? How much time do we spend reading and absorbing the scriptures? Remember in that first Peter passage, he said, grounded in your faith. That comes through knowing and studying. How much time do we spend meditating on God's words, meditating on the truths of God? Because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. He is always looking for these lies to pop up in your life. So how much time are we spending in meditation of studying the truths of God to combat the lies of Satan? How much time do we spend memorizing scripture? What resources are we holding back and giving to God? whether it's finances or, or time or other resources that we have, are we giving those freely and sacrificially to God? What about the spiritual disciplines of forgiveness, the spiritual disciplines of loving each other? What about the spiritual disciplines of seeking help for yourself? This is not something that we 
take lightly this idea of anxiety. And although we say everybody struggles with anxiety, there are different levels of how we struggle with anxiety. Doing nothing and hiding it is not the answer. You must talk to somebody. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, set of resources um, here at Hope Church, different counseling centers, discipleship centers, different places that we work with. We, we have professionals that if this is something that you're going through, we want to be able to help you, but we can't unless you come and ask. So please come talk to us. Let us know. Send us a text, email, whatever it is, saying, hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with anxiety and I need help. There are levels of professional help that we, I cannot give you. But if you don't ask and make us aware, we can't help you as we, can, we should be and can be. And please let us know. And then number three in the application, reduce stressors. Reduce stressors. This goes back to John 15 where we are talking about there are things in our life that need to be pruned away so that we are able to bear fruit that lasts for eternity. So what does it look like to reduce stressors? And um, if any of you have gone through pre-marriage counseling with Tab and myself, this is a big part of what we say. Hey, these aren't sin things, but here's how you can reduce some stressors. Number one, don't get a puppy your first year of marriage. Don't buy a house. Don't take out car payments. Uh, and we have this whole list of, hey, your first year of marriage, just try to reduce some of these stressors. We have yet to have anyone follow the list. And I swear there was one couple who actually thought we said, do all these things. It's fantastic. But what does it look like to go through your life and examine the different aspects of your life? And we talked about this uh, when David Barton went through John 15, and as we've gone through um, chapter 6 this last year, uh, we've talked about what does it look like to reduce these stressors in your life? I'll give you a couple of hints. I had someone very close to me who was battling with anxiety and uh, was trying not to go on medication and um, started meeting with a fantastic counselor who gave us, hey, here are some things to cut out of your life. Number one, uh, social media. It's got to go. Um, you don't know. Um, you may have heard the story why I got off social media. I was behind in Bible reading. I said, I'm going to shut it down until I get caught back up in my Bible reading plan. Shut it down for one week. All of a sudden, I realized I'm addicted to this thing. Like I was at a stoplight looking to pull up Facebook at a red light, and I realized, oh, no, I deleted that. I didn't even know I was doing it. The second week, I started to realize I'm breathing easier and sleeping better. I'm not trying to figure out how to solve everyone's problems that I'm scrolling through. And week two, I completely deleted all my social media, never went back. It's fantastic. So if you want to look, how do you reduce stressors in your life? Just get rid of social media. You're not actually that important. Number two, uh, she was told, stop watching the news in general. Don't watch the news. Again, we watch the news thinking that us knowing what's happening is we're now in control of this situation. We have figured out all the solutions of the entire world. Stop watching news. Every morning, Will catches me up in about five minutes of everything I need to know what's going on in the world. That's not actually not a joke. <laughs> I'll be at a coffee shop and I'm like, hey, what do you think about Ukraine? I'm like, woof. <laughs> I go outside, Will, what's going on in Ukraine? <laughs> you can double check. He'll, I, that's actually how I get most of my news. <laughs> 
Um, reduce caffeine and sugar intake. Um, that is not something I can coach you on. Uh, but there are different stressors as we start to examine our life. Uh, also reduce uh, police shows, drama shows, those types of things that we don't realize how much. And when we start to add up all of these things, uh, it can start to become clear why we are battling anxiety at an unprecedented level. Uh, the United States, I believe, is the most medicated country for anxiety. And I think that was true uh, in 2004 when I first heard it, and I don't think it's gotten better since then. So just by reducing stressors. Now, if you're struggling and you're on medication for it, please do not go home and throw that away. I am not saying that. I'm just saying if you're wondering how you can start to simplify your life and reduce these stressors, that's a good place to start. I'm not giving professional advice right now. This is just stuff I've seen that I can encourage you to do. So uh, application, preach yourself the gospel every day. Live out spiritual disciplines in your life. How are you changing things this week? And number three, reduce stressors. I want to close with Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, not most, not some, not if it applies, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's another one of those passages we could spend months on. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I would love to say, if you don't have this memorized next week, you can't play dodgeball. Because that's what we did when we were kids to get us to memorize something. I cannot stress you enough to memorize these passages that we are going through. If this is something that you're realizing you battle more and more, start to implement God's word. It is what we saw Jesus do when we talk about Jesus went through our emotions and he went through those temptations, but he battled those temptations in Matthew 4 with scripture. Now, it was easier for him. It was his words. We have to work and we have to put into practice memorizing these passages. I want to close with one more quote from Ed Welch. He writes, whatever wins our affections will control our lives. Whatever wins our affections will control our lives. What is your life being controlled by? What are the things, when we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is saying, give, 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 and do not be afraid of these things. They are related. So what are the things, as you go back through these um, now I'm going to tell you this. I was going to tell you this at the beginning. I'll tell you now. Let me know if you need these notes. I will send them to you because I wanted you to take notes instead of just getting a free copy at the beginning. Let me know if you need these notes. Let me know the other lies. Have you ever just talked to God and said, God, what lies am I believing that I shouldn't be believing? Let me know what those are. This is just the seven starters, if you will. What are the lies that Satan tells you that you believe? Let me know. But when we think about it, what, 
whatever is controlling our life, whatever we find ourselves dwelling on when there's nothing else to think about, that is usually what we're meditating on. Those are the things that we don't even realize that sometimes are controlling our life. So what does it look like to stop, to listen, to call out to God and say, reveal this to me through the Holy Spirit. Reveal this to me through your word. Reveal this to me of the lies that I'm believing. If you're scared to come talk to us, just understand you are believing a lie of Satan. We want to help you. We do not view people differently. Most of us, if not every one of us, have had to go through counseling on staff ourselves. In fact, as people move here and are wanting to help and um, wanting to get involved, one of the first things I say is, okay, we're going to get you into counseling. I want you to see, go through this because this is going to help you. This is how we build the infrastructure of your family. This is how we build the infrastructure of the church. It starts at home. So please come talk to us. I cannot emphasize that enough. Hope Church, I cannot tell you how much I love you. I cannot tell you how excited I am every time we get to come together like this. Please, please, let's do this together.